I am Mark, Pastor Mark. If you are visiting with us, um, it's great to have you here. We are a church that loves the Lord. Um, We love one another and we love His Word. And so we're going to turn to His Word now uh, in our time. So again, if you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. And um, yeah, we're in Mark chapter 9. We've been in Mark for a few months. I think we started around January. We're halfway through. We just finished chapter 8. Now we're in chapter 9. And this morning we're going to cover the first first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9. So I'm going to read the 13 verses. There's three stanzas, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, uh, then we'll get into our text this morning. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for being here. Mark 9, starting in verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, this is our second stanza. That first verse is the first stanza. Uh, Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter, stood, or Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one uh, with them anymore except Jesus alone. And then our third and final stanza, starting in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, which means they took it very serious. And they discussed uh, with each other what rising from the dead meant. They still did not fully understand. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said, Elijah does come first and restore all things and yet, how, it is, how is it written, or what's written about the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But, Jesus says, I say to you that Elijah has indeed come in the form of John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a glorious week with these young boys and girls and all those that prayed and contributed and served those young people and their families and you so faithfully and so effectively. We just say thank you, Lord. It was an incredible week. Lord, we thank you for your word that we can open it up and engage with you and engage with the words that you have for us. And so, Lord, we invite you here to have your way with us this morning. Give us the strength, O Holy Spirit, to take all that you have for us and strengthen us and propel us forward in our maturity and in our growth in Jesus Christ. And we pray all that in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. All right, so um, our outline for this morning is on the screen. Uh, That first verse, that first stanza is the power of God, and we're going to talk about that, obviously, at some length. And then the proclamations of Jesus, which might throw you a little bit, because in those verses 2 through 8 is... It's kind of all about the transfiguration. Or is it? Or is it? Because it concludes where God says, This is my son. Listen to him. 
listen to Him. So it's about the Word of God being adhered to. And then lastly, those last four verses, the preparation of John the Baptist who paved the way for the gospel message of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's hit that first verse in Mark chapter 9. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Last week we were in Mark chapter 8 and we were in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 38. And if you remember, there was four different stanzas that we covered last week in Mark chapter 8. In verses 22 through 26, if you're looking at Mark chapter 8, if you recall that uh, Jesus uh, was healing of a blind person, and it was a gradual removal of the blindness. He touched him twice, and it was uh, symbolic. Blindness is symbolic of sin, and it's symbolic of us coming to faith. That as we come to faith, our eyes are opened up more and more and more, and we continue to lean on Jesus to teach us and to open our eyes to truths, and that all of us, as we said last week, we were less blind last week than we were the week before, the month before, the year before, and we keep learning and growing and having our eyes open. And so that's the first thing he does in 22 through 26. That was that first stanza last week. And then in verses 27 through 30, Jesus gives them a test. And he asks them two questions in this test. Is who do people say that I am? And they say John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And he says in the second question, but who do you say that I am? Because, again, he, he's revealing more and more and their blindness is being lifted from them. And so he asked them, who do you say that I am? And he, they said, you are the Christ. And so they got that right. And then he introduces a new curriculum, which is going to now set the tone for the rest of the book of Mark. And that new curriculum, if you remember, in verses 31, 32, and 33, was that Jesus was going to die and suffer and be raised on the third day. And then right after that, he gives them, in verses 34 through 38, um, clarity on the cost of discipleship, where he says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And so it's, things are getting really ramped up. It's getting really tense, right? And so he's making sure that they're learning, but he reveals new curriculum, and he wants to make sure they're ready. And so they're going, wow, he's going to die they don't know it at the time, but on a cross. And he's saying, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. And it's like, wow, are we up for this? So it's a really important time as Mark is now, you know, you get to chapter 8, and now Jesus is starting to talk about his death. And so we ramp up, and now we're kind of ramping down. So he wants to make sure that they're tracking with him and that they're following. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're not going to read all the verses 1 through 11. We'll kind of skim through those. But essentially, Jesus, in, 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 he's, he's uh, recruiting his disciples, if you will. And he meets uh, some of the fishermen, Simon and uh, James and John. And he does these crazy things. And, and he starts speaking from Simon's boat in the first couple of verses. And then he has them to cast their nets. But they hadn't been catching anything all day. And, and their nets overflow. And the boats overflow with fish. And they start to sink. And it's just amazing. And verse 9 of chapter 5 in Luke says, For amazement had seized him, Simon, Simon Peter and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you're going to be catching men, fishing for the souls of men and women for the gospel. Verse 11, When they had brought their boats to land, they left 
everything and followed Him. They left everything. And so they want to make sure that whatever God's calling them to, when, we're, when Mark chapter 8, when He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, it's like, man, we've left everything. Can we do, can we pay that cost of discipleship? We've left everything for this guy. And so what's about to happen in Mark chapter 9 with the transfiguration is what's going to fuel and empower his disciples for the calling that he has in their life. Look also in, in, in Luke 5, 27, 28, and 29 when he calls Matthew. Or 27 and 28. After that he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and followed Jesus. There's a lot at stake. And that's what it means to leave everything, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow Him. But can we do that? It's a tall order. That cost of discipleship costs something. It costs us, essentially, our very lives to deny our lives and follow Him and put Him first in anything and everything. Our God provides exactly what we need. Our awesome and loving Lord doesn't simply steer us or point us in a particular direction. He makes certain to empower us for whatever it is that He calls us to. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, one of my kind of fallback verses when things get a little bit rough. He says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you, each and every one of you and I, entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely, maturely, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because faithful is He who calls you. Faithful is He who calls you. He will bring it to pass. It will surely happen. He will surely perform. Whatever God calls us to, He is faithful to make it happen, and He will empower us, enable us to do whatever He's called us to do. It's remarkable. It takes faith to accept and to practice this lesson on discipleship. So six days later, the Lord provided a magnificent proof in the transfiguration that God indeed does transform suffering into glory. And that's the lesson. God does indeed transform suffering into glory. Amen? God does indeed transform suffering into glory. That's who He is. It's remarkable. And it would be exactly what they would need at this part of their journey. They've left everything and He gives them this high call to discipleship, to, not, to deny themselves and pick up their cross. And so it's exactly what they would need in order to do that. John 1.14. See, John in his own gospel refers to this moment in his own gospel in, in chapter 1 verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. We saw His power. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And that's exactly what they needed to do what they were called to do. Incredible. Second Peter, because Peter was there too, right? It was Peter, James, and John. So John records it, and Peter also does. Turn to Second Peter. It's, it's in there behind uh, Hebrews and James at the end of the New Testament. Toward the end of the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 1. We're not going to read all those verses. I just want to focus you on 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 1. Second Peter. So Peter recalls this too as he's writing his letters. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, this isn't a fairy tale, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him 
by the majestic glory, by God, when he said on that mountain, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we, Peter writes, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And it changed their lives forever to do what God called them to do. It fueled them. And so there's layers, if you will, of God's power. And this is the first layer of God's glory and of his power. Another layer uh, is when Jesus was resurrected. His kingdom came in power when he was resurrected. Look at Romans 1, verse 4, what that has to say about the power at the resurrection. God, Jesus, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Another layer came after the resurrection, came on the day of Pentecost, when God's kingdom came in power at Pentecost, and we read about that in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8. You will receive power, you and I. We receive that same power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth, and into the hearts and minds of these young uh, boys and girls that came this weekend. Incredible. And then, of course, uh, another layer is that the transfiguration served as an anticipation of the powerful coming of God's kingdom when Christ returns in his second coming. So this new curriculum that Jesus introduced in chapter 8 about Christ's suffering and Christ's death would not prevent God from establishing his kingdom and his power. No, it's not going to prevent it. Rather, by solving the sin problem in God's world, the cross makes the kingdom possible. The cross makes the kingdom possible. The cross now becomes a significant or key ingredient of what it means to belong to that kingdom. And that's why he says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and do so. Deny yourselves. Pick up your cross and follow me. The cross is so important. Many people, many of us want many things from our Lord. But the cross (laughs) is a different matter, isn't it? But we don't embrace the cross simply because it's admirable, but because it's glorious. We embrace the cross because it's powerful. It's what empowers us. It's glorious. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this about the power of the cross. The power of the cross. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And so he's calling, and this is a very formidable, or, uh, formidable, and, and I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, formative moment. He's shaping his gospels, or his, his disciples. And so this is a very critical moment for them to understand that the power is in the cross. It fuels what they're going to do. And it reveals his power and his glory and the same within us. So that was our first stanza, verse 1. Our second stanza, what we call the proclamations of Jesus, is verses uh, 2 through 8, back in Mark chapter 9. Let's read those real quick. Mark 9, verses 2 through 8, the proclamations of Jesus. Six days later, then Jesus takes them up, Peter, James, and John, to a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments were radiant and exceedingly white, like no one on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. (laughs) I just love how Peter's so affirming, right? Jesus is like, are you sure? Okay, it's good. We can move forward. All right, we got got clearance from Peter. It's good that we're here. So cute. I'm not sure what I would have said. I'm not sure what you would have said, right? Probably something like that. I love it. 
It's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, clearly, he did not know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud formed over them, and a voice came out, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. So there's two things in this section that I want to cover. The first one is the transfiguration, and the second one is the teacher. So the first one, transfiguration, the second one is the teacher. Transfiguration. This, the word transfiguration in Greek is metamorpho, which is what, where we get metamorphosis. Okay? And so it means transfigure or transform. Same thing. And it describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. Okay? And it's the opposite. This is what's really cool. This transformation or transfiguration, the opposite of that word is masquerade or hypocrite. Because a hypocrite is an actor that wears a mask, right? The opposite of transformation is to put a mask or to be a hypocrite, which is an outward change that does not come from within, which is what Jesus accused so many of the religious leaders of and what we need to be very careful of doing ourselves. And so Jesus allowed his glory to radiate through his entire being to these disciples. And Scripture tells us, interestingly enough, that believers today can experience the same transfigurative glory or transfiguration glory. Check this out. We can do the same thing. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Turn to your, in your Bibles to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. This is what he was trying to get his disciples to see, that they could be transformed just like he was revealing to them. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, church, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 2, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be metamorpho, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be metamorphosed, right? Transformed by the things we put into our mind and that's what God's word, the truth of his word does. It changes us from the inside out. Can I get an amen? Turn to your right to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a very similar uh, verse as the one we just read in Romans, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 3.18, but we, all of us, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Why? Because we're being metamorphosed, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Incredible. And so that's what Jesus is showing them, that they're going to be changed from the inside out and they're going to change the world. And we're here as a result of that. We're here as a result of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's incredible. And so at the Transfiguration, God speaks to Peter and to James and to John about Jesus. God affirms to what Peter had just confessed in chapter 8 when he said, you are the Christ. God's affirming that because he says, this is my beloved son. At the transfiguration, the true form of the son of God temporarily broke through the veil of his humanity. 
and the disciples saw his glory. Wow. I don't know what I would have been able to say either. I'd have probably been a little terrified as well. When Christ returns in his glory, all believers will also be transfigured and thereby receive a glorious resurrected body. Christ's transfiguration is the preview of every believer's own eventual transfiguration. Check out Philippians 3:20 and 21. It says our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In Colossians 3, 1-4, very similarly states the same thing. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Jesus Christ, keep seeking the things above, church, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, your mind, God's Word, on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. This is where it all begins on the Mount of Transfiguration for us to understand all of this. So that was the transfiguration. The second part of our second stanza is the teacher. Three things that I want to point out that happened at the transfiguration. The first one, he was transfigured. We already talked about that. The second thing, Moses and Elijah appear and speak to Jesus. Moses represented what from the Old Testament? Anybody know? The law. Elijah represented what? The prophets. Both of which find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the prophets and to fulfill the law. We find here in this moment then a perfect harmony of the law, the prophets, and the gospel. The law, the prophets, and the gospel. A perfect harmony. And that's what makes it God's Word. We're talking the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus, the transfiguration moment with Moses who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Christ, who represents the New Testament gospel message. All that is part of what we call the full counsel of God. We need to understand the full counsel of God. I was a young man one time, so many years ago when I was in my 20s, my wife and I had just gotten married, and we were going to a church in Bellflower. And Pastor Dan and Sherry Brink, who are still at that church, been there about 30 years, bless their hearts, serving that community. And they took in a homeless guy to live with them, and he lived in their garage, Jeffrey Collins. And Jeffrey Collins was a man of God's Word. He was getting his life together, and he studied God's Word. And for whatever reason, we had a conversation, and he asked me how much time, or how much I knew about the Old Testament. And I said, not much, sir. And uh, he beat me up about that in a really loving, kind way. And he says, you'll never be able to understand the gospel message the way it was written unless you understand the full counsel of God's Word and get yourself involved in the Old Testament. And so I did, and he was absolutely right. And so I think that that's what is represented here, the transfiguration, is that we as a church need to understand the full counsel of God, the law, the prophets, and the gospel message of the New Testament. And so that's going to take us quite some time. We'll probably never get through it the way, uh, yeah, in our, in our lifetime. There's just so much there. There's just so much there, and I love that. So please make sure that you're embracing the full counsel of our Lord. And then the third thing that happens, right, he was transfigured. The second thing was Moses and Elijah appear and speak to Jesus. And the third thing that happened is a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And these words are a rebuke 
from God. Their rebuke to the disciples, the three. The rebuke, the first thing that the rebuke is for is that they wanted to place Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Let us build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. No, no. Jesus is not equal with Moses and Elijah. He's greater than they are. He's God in the flesh. And the second reason that they get rebuked is to, it serves to remind the disciples that following Jesus meant that they were supposed to listen to him. So they get rebuked for thinking that they can build these three tabernacles and put Jesus on a level playing field with Moses and Elijah. And then the next thing he says is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that word listen means to give constant heed. H-E-E-D. To listen, hear, and do. To give heed constantly to the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To constantly give heed to what is written for us in God's Word. It's a lifestyle to constantly heed God's Word in our lives. How are we doing there? I hope we're doing better than we were the week before or the month before or the year before. In this Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, Jesus had not spoken a word when God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. They could have said, he hasn't said anything, so we thought we'd talk. He hadn't said anything. So what that means, to give constant heed both to what he had said and what he will say moving forward. What's interesting, in verse 5, Peter, it says that Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi. They actually refer to him as Rabbi. They recognize that he's a teacher, but they don't listen to him. They want to start doing stuff for him. Let's make some tabernacles. Ah, I'm busy. Got to work, do stuff, right? And I think there's a place for doing stuff for our Lord, but we've got to get this correct, right? Because we can say, what are we doing for Jesus? What are we accomplishing for Jesus? What are we giving to Jesus? What are we creating for Jesus? But we can't get that order reversed. We must never get it out of order. There is indeed always much to be done for our Lord, like many people who bore their cross this week by taking care of all those crazy, fun kids. The, the, they were exhausted. The kids are so energetic and all the helpers are like, oh, i got to go take a nap, right? It's fantastic. And so they, they bore their cross. Thank you for those of you who bore your cross this week taking care of those wonderful kids. But we must never get it out of, out of order, even though there's much to be done for our Lord, because listening to Him and giving constant heed must always be our first priority. Giving constant heed always comes first. Always. When we listen first, it's then that we will know what to do, what to make, how to serve, what to give for Jesus. When we listen first. Check out Luke chapter 6. I'm probably going to speak at men's breakfast on Wednesday about, uh, on, on, these, on these verses. Um, so I'm not going to unpack it too much, but just kind of want to read it. Um, to kind of ground our hearts about listening. Listening first and foremost. Luke chapter 6, 46 through 49. What a powerful opening verse in this four-verse stanza. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What does Lord mean? Somebody said it. Master. When the Master speaks, what do you do? 
you do it. God says in the Mount, in the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him. Every, and so then he says in verse 47, everyone who comes to me, and so there's an example of what's going to happen when we do this. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and constantly heeds them, I will show you whom he is like. Verse 48, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the trials of life, the hardship of life, the torrent burst against that house because we all have our floods and our torrents, don't we? And it could not shake that house because it was well built on the words of God. We all have our stuff, man. If the torrent hasn't hit you yet, it's coming. I think Rick Warren said years ago that we're all either in a trial, or we just got out of a trial, or we're in one, or we're about to go into the next one. Right? In verse 48, But the one who does not constantly heed my word, or does not act accordingly, is like a man who built his house on the ground without the foundation, and that torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So much is at stake, and it all hinges upon the Word of God, doing what it needs to do in our lives. It's incredible. Peter, James, and John were out of line, <laughs> or out of sorts, because they were terrified, verse 6 tells us, right? I didn't, I didn't know what the answer They were terrified. What is your typical response or reaction or action when you're terrified? When the torrents hit, when you're in a moment and God's doing something, you're like, ah, oh, I'm terrified. What's your typical action or reaction? Do you start doing stuff like they did? Let's make something. Or do you stop and listen? They're terrified. And God says, listen. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to build anything. This is my son. Listen to him. I think it's powerful. So the Lord interrupts Peter's little speech and he focuses their attention not on the transfiguration but on the Word of God. Not on the transfiguration but on the Word of God. The memory of experiences and mountaintop moments, they come and go and change from one person to another, don't they? But His unchanging Word is to be our focus at all times. You get that? A couple months ago, the, the, uh, 40-some-odd ladies had, what, from what I understand, a really mountaintop experience, right? But that, that's not for that reason alone. It should fuel us to the stability of God's Word, His unchanging faithfulness of His Word. 1 Peter 1.25 says that the Word of the Lord endures forever. Transfigurative moments don't last forever, but God's Word endures forever. And it's the Word which is being preached to you. Discipleship is built on the inspired Word of God, not inspired moments. Amen? Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship is built on the inspired Word of God, not inspired moments. The glorious experience of the transfiguration, because it was glorious, was not an end in itself. It was God's way of confirming His Word in His people. And so we have those moments that God confirms and confirms, but He's always want to confirm His Word. Lastly, the preparation of John the Baptist. The last four verses of Mark chapter 9. Let's read those. As they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement. They took it serious. They, they agreed to do that. And they, but they still discussed what that means, so they're still not completely getting it. And they asked Him, saying, well, 
if you are the Messiah, essentially, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? In verse 11, he said to them, Elijah does come and restore all things. And yet, or, he's trying to draw their attention back to the Son of God. Let's talk about the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Why? Because in verse 13, Elijah has already actually come in the person of John the Baptist. And they somehow missed that. And so he's trying to make sure that he's removing the blinders. And they did to John the Baptist whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. And so Peter and James and John were to keep silent about what they had just seen until after the resurrection of Christ because their misunderstanding of his messianic mission, that he was to die, they were still a little fuzzy on that, even after the transfiguration. And so this was Jesus' last command to remain silent that Mark records in his gospel. And the implication is that a time of gospel proclamation would follow this period of silence. Only after the resurrection would they be able to fully understand this transfiguration moment and then be able to proclaim its meaning correctly. Sometimes God just simply has us to wait until He reveals to us what we fully need to know before we do something for Him. The disciples expressed their confusion as well about the coming of Elijah, who was to prepare the way for the Messiah. They knew the prophecies from the Old Testament and wondered if Elijah had already come. Did they miss it? Or was he still yet to come? Perhaps Elijah appearing in the transfiguration. Maybe that's what it was. And then maybe that's what was going to fulfill this prophecy. But Jesus, in his Gospels, makes it very clear that this Elijah was John the Baptist, who had already, indeed, prepared the way before him. And so often, in our efforts to seek and follow our Lord, just like they did, we, we sincerely want to know more. We have a desire to have the right information so that we can proceed with godly wisdom, just like they did. Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? And oftentimes, just like what had happened here in Mark chapter 9, it was already given to him. It already happened. And oftentimes for us too, we kind of want some things answered from the Lord. Well, what about this and what about that? And it's actually already been given to us. The information about John the Baptist has already been given to them. It was already evident and they missed it somehow. And for some reason, we do the same thing, don't we? We want more from God. And he's like, what? wait a minute. How are you stewarding what I've given you already? Like, God, if you would just tell me this and show me that. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I think the last three lessons you're kind of behind on. Right? Like, finish your homework on the stuff I've given you already first. And so sometimes we have this uh, stagnation or this kind of stalemate with God. And I think oftentimes it's because we haven't stewarded what he's already given us. He's saying, steward that truth first. Steward that lesson first. And I'll give you more when you're ready for it. Lastly, the disciples, as we mentioned, they inquire about Elijah. And that's fine on some level. But in Jesus' response in verse 12, he actually steers them to truth about himself. He directs them to focus on what is written about the Son of Man. He doesn't spend a lot of time on Elijah. He just redirects them to Jesus Christ, to himself. Because Jesus Christ is and must always be the ultimate focal point in our lives and in our churches. We can study lots of people, we can study lots of topics, but they must all direct us 
to the Messiah, to Jesus. Amen? We're going to pray. Really good to see you all, and thank you all again for um, what you've done this week for VBS. It was just such an amazing week. Can't thank you enough. I'm going to pray. Don't forget your candy. And if you do forget it, thank you for forgetting, because I will find a good home for it. Um, as the worship team works their way up, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then they're going to close this in a song. If you need prayer, our prayer team is available to my left over here in the corner. You guys enjoy the rest of the, uh, the weekend. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for empowering us, Lord, for letting us know, Lord, that you do indeed give us exactly what we need for when you call us or for whatever it is that you call us to. And so, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for your power. Thank you, Lord, that you are transforming us. Lord, thank you for your long-suffering in that process, Lord, as you continue to remove the blindness from our lives. We're so grateful. Thank you for this church. Thank you that we can lift up your word every week. What a privilege. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.